0: So as you obviously know by now, as we're halfway through 2022, uh, for this year, we have been focusing on the book of Matthew. We've been slowly working our way through the entirety of the book. And we've made it to Matthew 13 now. Um, as we've been going through, we've kind of broken the book of Matthew down into little mini-series. And so each little mini-series focuses on a different thing based on what, how Jesus taught. And this week brings us to the conclusion of the one that we're in currently, where we're, in which we've been talking about the kingdom of God. And so, at right when we began the book of Matthew, way back in, uh, actually it was in December, so we did start it in 2021, we realized that one of the major, most important themes in the book of Matthew is this idea of the kingdom of God. Uh, I've said it every week, I think, I've preached through this entire sermon, is that Jesus actually begins his entire preaching career with a statement that kind of is the key that we overlay the rest of the book of Matthew. The very first words of preaching that, that Jesus speaks in the book of Matthew is, is the phrase, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is all around you. And we've talked each week about how the word repent just means to turn, that we're heading in a certain direction, away from the kingdom kind of life. And Jesus' invitation isn't one of judgment. It's not saying, it's not a street corner preacher, repent or burn. It's, it's saying you're off track, and so we want to encourage you to turn back towards, towards the life of flourishing, for the kingdom is all around you. There's this kingdom life that, we, that Jesus wants you to experience and he's inviting you into it. He goes on to explain what that means uh, in, the, in the Sermon on the Mount and then different teachings. Uh, this particular mini-series, we focus specifically on the kingdom. What's the kingdom of heaven like? Lisa opened us with an overview of what kingdom is and what it means for us. Uh, two weeks ago, we actually talked about parables in general and I'll actually loop back to that in a minute. And then last week, Lisa talked to us um, Uh, Lisa talked to us about the fact that the the kingdom really is all around us, even though we experience evil in this world. We see the wheat growing, this beautiful fruit, um, but then unfortunately there are are weeds and bad things around us as well. So this week we're going to actually wrap up our kingdom series by looking at the parable of the mustard seed uh, and and then the parable of the pearl. We're going to look at four different parables actually this morning. And so before we actually get into the parables, I want to remind you of what we talked about two weeks ago. So two weeks ago, we kind of talked about how when a Jewish rabbi would teach a parable, he, he, he and unfortunately in this case, always he's, even though there were good women teachers, I'm sure, uh, would, would, would teach a parable in a way that would have four different levels of understanding that he wants you to get. Actually, Carter, can you throw up like, my very last slide? I'm sorry, that's kind of a curveball for you there. Uh, the one with the, the ver- One more. That one, okay. Um, we talked about this acronym that kind of helps us walk through those four parts. We said in each parable, there's a straight or surface meaning. There's a, that, a meaning that no matter who you were, you could understand, you could grasp. It's the, it's the basic, most straightforward understanding of the parable. You start there. Uh, so what, what's being said, what's the context that we're in? Um, it's called the Peshat. Then we talked about how a Jewish rabbi would hide Old Testament references inside of his parable. And he actually wouldn't tell you where those were. So, he, so it was your job, if you were a disciple of that rabbi or somebody who was committed to understanding what he was trying to say, to, to do the work to, one, figure out where the Old Testament references were, then go back and learn what they meant in their original context, and then, three, figure out how they applied to the parable the rabbi was, was, was teaching. So that second phrase is ramez, or hints in, in Hebrew. Today, what're we're going to we're actually going to practice the third part of that understanding, something known as "derash," which is to inquire or to seek." Uh, that's taking a look at your parable from all of the different angles. We talked about how Tim Keller, in his book about the prodigal son, does this brilliantly, where, he'll, where he, he says, "Put yourself into the feet of the father, and understand the parable through that lens. Then of the older brother, understand it through that lens. then the younger son. And understand it through that lens. And then even the townsfolk, right? That we can look at it from all of these different angles and we can gain different understandings or meanings in the parable when we do all of that. Which then finally brings us to this last part, which is something I'm hoping for today as well. And that brings us to the last part, which is the secret part, which is the only reason it's secret, it's because what the rabbi was hoping in every single one of his parables is that God would speak to you directly. that That he would reveal things to you that you needed for yourself that are only for you. Uh, and that's why they couldn't be taught or they're secret. Not because there's some mysterious magic or something like that, but just because they're personal and for you. So this morning, as we look at, at the parables we're going to look at, I want to put that into practice, in particular, in particular the derash part there. So, we're, <clears throat> so we're, where we are is in Matthew 13. We start at verse 31. So if you've got a Bible or an app or whatever it may be, you can open up to that spot. It'll also be on the screen. It says this. He told them another parable, he being Jesus. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it's the largest of the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch into its branches. I want to pause right there just to kind of do the first part of that parable. What's the Peshat here? What's going on? How do we understand all of these pieces? So I want to talk gardening for a little bit this morning. Now, years ago, I had a garden. Uh, I actually miss it a lot. I had a little garden where I could grow some vegetables. The problem is that my yard doesn't get the best sun, so we actually put a lot of work into it, and there was some great things that came out of it, Um, but we just never produced as much as we want, so it's gone now, and I actually do kind of miss it. Uh, But I learned a few things uh, while I was gardening. Do we have any other gardeners here? I know some of you are. Ansel and I talk about it sometimes. A couple other people, we got a few more? All right, good. Good, you'll understand this more then. Otherwise, you, other, the rest of you will just have to take my word on it. So I learned a few things while I was gardening. And the first thing I learned um, is that some plants are surprisingly wimpy. Anybody experienced that before? Right, there, the, when I was gardening, there were some times where I wondered how certain plant varieties survived in the wild at all, right? Because there are some plants that you put in the ground and it's like the wind blows on them weird and they fall over and die and you're done. And you're like, how do you do this in nature where there are things that can attack you or whatever it might be? Um, I killed a lot of plants when I was gardening because it's just difficult. Some plants are incredibly hard to keep alive. Anybody who's garden knows that, right? That some of them are just immensely frustrating in that way. Um, There's a level, I learned a level of gentleness, and I'm sure Jen would say I need to learn more gentleness, maybe I should start gardening again, Um, but when it came to treating sprouts or small things in that way. But I learned another lesson as well, right? Lesson one was it was really hard to keep certain plants alive, but lesson two was exactly the opposite. Has anyone here ever planted strawberries or mint or green onion? I did all three of those, right? What happens when you plant strawberries in a little patch of your garden? It takes over everything, and it's so fast, you're not necessarily going to get strawberries, I had a hard time with that part of it, Um, but you will have it and take over your entire garden. I actually had divided boxes, and and because strawberries shoot out like these little tentacles, like they can jump the sides of your boxes even, right, and it kind of took over massive parts. It was also, strawberries for me were a cruel joke because I would actually grow them and I would get a strawberry and it would look great and then some woodland creature would come and eat half of it, always only half, just enough to let me know that I actually produce fruit and I don't get to eat it, right? So that, oh, it was awful. I think we ate like two strawberries the whole time we had the patch. I probably grew 100 and ate two. It was that, it was bad. Uh, but the same thing is true with mint. If you put mint in a little box, it is hard to kill. It just keeps coming back and growing and growing and growing and growing, um, and you, you can't get rid of it. Uh, green onion was interesting because that kind of grew in a different way. Um, actually, we still have green onion all over our yard. Like, I don't know how it shoots its seeds out, but when it did, I actually think I might have taken over part of my neighborhood with it. So don't tell my neighbors, um, but there's green onion all over the place. And they were like, weird, I don't know where this came from. And I'm like, me either. Um, (laughs) But I do because I did it. Oops. Um, But it just goes all over the place. It's impossible to kill. And so there are certain plants that are really difficult um, to uh, to grow and ones that are really difficult to get rid of. Now, in this parable, we're talking about mustard. And mustard is in the second category of plants. Uh, it's it's, it's, like the th- it's, it's the one that's hard to kill and grows in a lot of different place, places. Now, before we get off track, I just want to get a few things straight that for some of you won't matter and some of you might care a lot. Um, but there are actually many different kinds of mustard plants, and sometimes that can get people confused. Um, if you were to grow mustard around here, it probably would look more like this, if you want to throw up that first picture, Carter. Uh, a, a, a delicate flower or a leaf, like if you buy mustard greens, right? that's what it'll look like. Um, if you grow mustard in a lot of regions, it'll look like that. Um, that's not the kind of mustard we're talking about. That actually doesn't help us in the parable at all. It actually could make it confusing. So let's get that out of our minds altogether. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is mustard that grows in the Middle East, which does start from a very small seed. The seeds look like this. So th- those little kind of just little tiny, tiny balls is where a mustard plant will come from, especially Middle Eastern mustard. It's a small seed. Now, some of you might be thinking as well, well, technically, if you had done any research on a mustard plant before, uh, it's not actually a tree, which I know the Bible says is a tree. It's a bush. I understand that. It's technically a bush in science. But you've got to remember that this was written 2,000 years ago before we had all of the different distinctions we have now in the modern scientific method. Uh, because, But at the same time, When you actually see a mustard bush, it looks like this, and you can tell why they would say tree, because it looks an awful lot like a tree, right? That's a mustard tree, bush, mustard. You get it. You get where I'm coming from. Now, mustard, this mustard bush, is an invasive species, and it kind of grows like mint or strawberries or onions. Um, Those small seeds will shoot out of the ground really quickly, actually. It's one of the fastest-growing plants in the world, mustard is. Um, they can reach maturity in as few as 80 days, which is really, really fast for something that size. Uh, maybe a tomato plant might reach maturity in about that same amount of time, but the height is dramatically different right? in the way that it produces there. Now, full-grown mustard tree can grow as high as 20 feet tall with a spread just as wide, so 20 feet by 20 feet. It's a very, very big plant. So your image one that we have here is a fast-growing plant that comes quickly from a small seed It's an invasive species that grows quickly and once it gets root, it's hard to get rid of because those 20-foot branches will drop more of those seeds and just keep spreading out that way. So that's our first image I want you to hold in your minds. The second one comes in verse 33, if we want to throw that up on the screen. Which he says, He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all the way through the dough. Jesus spoke all of these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So it was fulfilled that what was spoken through the prophet, I will open my mouth in parables and will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. So image one is of a mustard seed, this small invasive plant that starts, or the big invasive plant that starts from a small seed and grows and spreads rapidly. And image two is yeast, and you can actually see that there's 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 a tie to the previous parable here too. Those two things function similarly. Yeast is also an incredibly small organism, which is weird when you think about it. that in bread. It's actually a living creature that grows. Um, but it starts small and it grows rapidly. If you've ever baked, which, so gardening was one of my hobbies for a while, and baking still is. Not everybody knows that about me. I like to bake bread. I Actually, I'm pretty decent at some sweets and things like that. Um, but I get, to, I, like, I get to use yeast often. And if you've ever baked with yeast, it's crazy at how fast it works, Right? You put a little bit of yeast, not very much at all, and it starts to, to, to grow. And when it does, it produces air and it completely transforms and changes whatever dough you're working with. So on the one hand, the, the, the parable of the yeast is, is is almost identical to the parable of the mustard seed, something that starts small and grows bigger. But it's showing us something else as well. As the, as the yeast is worked through the dough, it doesn't just provide this structure, what it does instead is it completely transforms the thing you're working with, right? If you have the difference between a cracker and a loaf of bread, and so just adding air and yeast into that space changes the texture, it changes the taste, it changes the usefulness, right? You can't make a hamburger out of crackers, well, you could, but it, would, it wouldn't it would really work the right way, right? It, it transforms it entirely, takes it from what it was into something different. You have the same core base ingredients And yet, the thing that you produce is drastically different. So Jesus is describing the kingdom of heaven here as something that grows like crazy and also something that starts small and then ends up working its way through the thing that it touches, changing everything about it, right? Not the core substance of what it is, but how it functions and interacts with the world. Now, the interesting thing is that Jesus tells this parable, declaring to people who haven't really thought much about the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven is like this. So when you start to experience it, and it doesn't just mean heaven in the future, right? We talked about with the wheat and the weeds last week. We've talked about that through the entire series, that the kingdom of heaven is something we can begin to experience now in this space. And he says, so when you do, it's going to function like that. Now, the interesting thing is that even though the kingdom of heaven had just broke in in the way that Jesus is describing during his lifetime, his prediction in these parables actually came to pass in the history of the Christian movement. I want to take just a few seconds here to kind of walk you through the Christian movement here, the history of the Christian movement. You see, Christianity wasn't, especially to the early believers, wasn't just a religious movement or a new religion. It was far bigger than that. The idea of the kingdom of heaven required Christians to reconsider everything about their life, about how they interacted with themselves or with the people around them, how they functioned in society as a whole. Right? It worked its way through every aspect of their life and began to transform those things. As the early church took seriously what Jesus was asking them to do, it changed everything for them. Jesus offered a whole new worldview that replaced the one that was. Jesus was inaugurating a movement that would change the entire meaning of what it meant to be a human in the world. In other words, what was seen as normal before, Christians said not only should that not be normal, it's not right. It's not helping people flourish. It's not bringing us into the kind of life that Jesus has for us. I actually want to share with you one example of that, which I think a lot of us can relate to. And we just had the—we just had July 4th, the Independence Day, last week, uh, and the founding fathers of our nation signed the Declaration of Independence, and in it they wrote these famous words. They said, "We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and that they're endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights." It's in the preamble of the Constitution, or the Declaration of—I'm sorry, it's in the De- Declaration of Independence. I'm sorry, Micah. I got it right at the end, though, right? I. I said the first thing I said, and Mike is just like, no, he's a history buff or history professor, so like he's like, we're not gonna, yeah. Anyway, it's in the Declaration of Independence. Got it right in the end there. Now, we can debate how well our founding fathers actually lived out this creed. That's a different discussion for a different day. But what I want to focus on here is that the founding fathers of America said that this idea that, that all people are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights and that all men are created equal. They, 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 I, I want to actually focus on that first phrase, that we hold these truths to be self-evident. Now, my guess is that for most of you, you're like, yeah, of course we do. That's so basic to what, how we understand the world, the world, the, the lens in which we see it through. But where do you think that idea came from? See, that's an idea that's so normal for us, but a short look at most of human history and that That statement is not self-evident at all. Through most of human history, the very opposite of that statement was believed to be true. The dominant worldview at the time of Jesus would have been that would have been self-evident was exactly the opposite of that particular statement. See, the Romans believed that it was self-evident that some people were created superior to others, based on whether it was based on the family you were born into, the location you were born into, what empire you were part of—in their case, the Roman Empire. They believed believed things like slavery was self-evident. Actually, Aristotle, writing about 400 years before Jesus, summarized, summarized it like this. He said, For that some should rule and others be ruled is a thing not only necessary, but expedient. From the hour of birth, some are marked out for subjugation, others for rule. About 400 years before Jesus, in the midst of the Roman Empire, and the Greek empires, Aristotle is writing about the fact that the self-evident declaration here is that not everyone is created equal. That some people were created to be ruled while others were created to rule. There's an inherent difference in value that was self-evident during the time of Aristotle that carried through it through the Roman culture and actually way before that as well. It was self-evident that some people were created for slavery in the Roman world. It was self-evident that men were superior to women. We see it actually throughout human history in that particular way. We see it all over the ancient world. And I actually, I actually think this is one of the areas, though, that the Bible gets the, uh, a very unfairly bad rap. Because some people would say, well, we see it in the Bible, too. But if you actually read the passages on women in the Bible, what you realize is that compared to the Roman world and actually many of the things that come previous to that, the Bible is incredibly progressive in the value that it gives to women. And so the Christian message is speaking against the Roman world in which, uh, in which men are superior to women. We see in the ancient world that adults, the self-evident idea is that adults are superior to children. In the ancient world, if you had a child and you didn't want it, it was not only legal to abandon it, like on, a, on the bank of a river or a temple. We actually, and if you were here for the Revelation series, we talked about the temple of Artemis and how it was very off-regular to just leave babies on the hill in the back. It, it, was, <clears throat> it, was, it was very common and normal and in many cases taught to be the right thing to do. That the value of the adult was superior to the value of a child. That was the dominant dominant worldview during the time of Jesus. Slaves are less, women are less, babies are less. That was dominant throughout much of human history. So what happened? How do we get to the phrase at the beginning of the Declaration of Independence? Why why is it that what was so obvious throughout most of human history is appalling to us now? Well, you see, a little over 2,000 years ago, out of the small province in Rome, 12 guys go out preaching, proclaiming, proclaiming a different kind of worldview. They proclaim the teachings of Jesus. The, the didache, which is a first century Christian handbook, forbade Christians from doing what was considered normal. It says, You shall not kill which was born. And the Christians took that seriously. So as in the Roman world, adults are superior to kids. We just said that. And Christians said that we're not going to function that way. And we actually see throughout the Roman world that the church started popping up in the places in which those things were happening. Around the temple of Artemis, we find churches that would go out to the hill on the back where the babies were being left and they would take them in. Near the temple of Asclepius, if you were here for the, Romans, the, the, the Revelation series as well, they would turn people away who were old or who, sometimes women. And we see along the road to the path to the temple to Asclepius, we see Christian churches again. Throughout the, throughout the Roman world, Christians says we're, we're not going, to, support that, we're not going to, to accept that worldview as being true. That some people are less than other people and we're actually going to work to create spaces where they can be valued and cared for. Christians held large feasts in which everyone was invited, and you actually see that throughout Scripture. Young, old, women, men, poor, rich, were all invited into this space. In the book of James, it talks about not showing favoritism at those places because they were so prominent that they had to try to figure out how to do it well so that everyone would be invited and have the same value in that space. Paul, in the book of Galatians, says it this way, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free. there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. You See, Paul is the first in the name of Jesus to declare that all people are equal. This is an entirely different worldview to the rest of the Roman world. And early Christians were radically committed to it. So committed, in fact, that that slowly this new worldview replaced the old order of things. And today, in every place that Christianity has spread and is the dominating worldview, um, we see see now that this equality reigns, or at least the, the acceptance of it. Whether we practice it or not, again, is a different story. So out of a small little province in Rome, a seed took root and grew into something that was world-changing. A worldview began permeating every part of society, and it changed everything. In other words, a mustard seed sprouted, yeast mixed its way in, and the kingdom ends up changing the world into way, the way we know it now. Now I don't know about you, but when I think about it, when I think about that related to Jesus' parables, it's inspiring, isn't it? Like we think, "Wow, this little thing of the kingdom can end up making an impact on the world stage that big." Christians deciding to follow the teaching of Jesus, working to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth in in small ways, can accomplish these massively big things. And that truth is still true today in the same way it was then. But that's not all that Jesus is saying here. Remember at the beginning of this message, we said that that, that there are multiple ways to take a look at a a particular parable. And so one of the ways that we did is we, we understood the basics of gardening but then we started to do some of the dirash, right? Let's look at it in, in, the, in the big picture of the kingdom impact on the world now. But I want to, take, it, I want to take, uh, take a look at this particular parable from not 100,000 feet, but one foot inside of all of our own lives. Practice a little bit of dirash. Now, we could do Ramez too, but like we said, the rabbis don't necessarily tell us that, so I'm going to encourage you to do that on your own. There's some awesome ties here to Ezekiel. If you want to go do that work, figure out what it means, and we can talk about it some other time. Um, But what I want to do right now is I want to take a look look at it from a one-foot view. The the 100,000-foot view is inspiring, that a little thing like the kingdom can change the world in the big ways. But at the same time, if we apply these same principles to our lives individually, the same thing can happen. Jesus wants the kingdom to come to earth, right? He says it in the Lord's Prayer, may it be on earth as it is in heaven. And we can see that on a macro scale, but he wants it on a micro scale as well. You see, Jesus' invitation to each of us is to allow the kingdom to permeate each and every part of our lives individually. He wants our lives to be transformed in the same way that he wants the world to be transformed. What do I mean by that? It starts in the same way. If we allow the kingdom to be planted in an area of our lives, it begins to spread through all of it, if we don't kill it. I would encourage you to try that out. Now, one example, kind of to give some handles of how this works, how a little teeny piece will start to spread into different areas, uh, I I have from my own own life. Um, I've I've shared some of this with you all before, but in college I was a very different person. Actually, I, th- I would be embarrassed if a lot of you could have seen me while I was in college. I'm not proud of that. It just is what it is. Um, my commitment to a kingdom life w- was very, very, very much lower. Right? I, I, I share this with you before. I went to church through college, um, mostly so I didn't have to lie to my grandma. So I guess I had a little kingdom left in there. right? My grandma would ask me regularly, were you at church last week? Yes, I was. Uh, and then I left immediately after. right? Um, not proud of it, but it's just the truth of the matter. Uh, and so uh, I'm, I'm not going to share that whole story again. I'm happy to if you want to. If you want to know where i come from, um, some of it's really messy and gross. And I'll even share those parts with you, but not this morning. But what I do want to focus on is when I was in college, what I, I had almost no um, discretion at all or dis- discernment at all around what kind of media I would put into my life. Uh, so... and, <clears throat> and uh, whether it was movies or music or whatever it may be, anything that was out there was fair game. And so uh, some of it was very much less than wholesome. Um, actually, some of it was pretty toxic. Now, the interesting thing was, though, that I didn't realize at all what it was doing to me and my psyche as a whole. On some level I did, I think, but I, hadn't beco- I, had, but I had truly become desensitized to it. That, that things that I could see or hear wouldn't affect me anymore whether it was violence or sex or language or whatever it may be, whether it's the music I listened to, the lyrics that would come out, the worldview that it would portray, anything that would be, I, couldn't, I became desensitized to it and started to not even think about how it was affecting me on a day-to-day basis. Now, don't get me wrong, it was affecting me. I just couldn't recognize it anymore until Jesus started working on my life again in a different kind of way. Now, I've shared this story before, but, so I'll skip the details, but uh, God drew me back to himself in a big way. He actually did it through a group of fifth and sixth graders. So if there are fifth and sixth graders still in this room, uh, your grade is a huge reason why I'm here this morning, which is weird to think about. But faith like a child is really, really strong. Even a small mustard seed grows into a big deal, right? We see that there. But a group of fifth and sixth, and eighth, sixth graders, um, changed the trajectory of my life, put me back into a seminary space, uh, helped me meet Jen, which is a big deal, um, and then started to, to re, uh, reintroduce the kingdom seeds into my life in those ways. And what I started to realize is that as I took cultivating those seeds more seriously again, the kingdom grew and started permeating my life again. And all of a sudden, the, de- the, the, the desensitization, desensitization that I had around those media things went away. And there were times where actually I would... General Gen attest to this, that I'd be like, hey, this show was great in college. I want to show it to you. We'd sit down and watch, and I'd be like, actually, I don't. This is embarrassing, right? Like, the, like I, the, my memory of it was of something that was funny or whatever it might be, and we actually sat and watched it. I'm like, I actually am uncomfortable sitting next to my wife watching this right now. And the weird thing is, before we started, I, w- I didn't actually think it would be bad because I don't remember it that way. But as the kingdom life began to permeate into those spaces, my sensitivities changed. The things that were helping me flourish or holding me back, the understanding of those things changed. And the more that I allowed that to grow, the more then I began to experience the kingdom in my life in those ways. The more I could, the, the more I could become discerning to not only what media I'm putting in, but to what other people are saying to me as well. Some of those closed off, off areas of my life began to reopen again. Now, the same is true for all of you. The kingdom life is all around you if you'll let it grow inside. If, you can, if we plant a seed in one small area, it grows in that space and begins to try to spread throughout all of you. And each of those spaces then lead to more thriving and flourishing. But then then does leave us with one inevitable question left. If that's true, if the kingdom is all around us, and if it grows inside of us and helps us flourish, why don't more of us do it? Why don't more of us allow Jesus to permeate into those different parts of our lives? I think Jesus addresses that in the last part of his parables today. Jesus says in verse 44, "The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then and then in his joy went and sold all that he had and brought it back and bought the field." Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and he bought it. So again here, what we have is Jesus saying that there's this kingdom around us that's more valuable than everything else that we have. That if we allow it to permeate into the spaces, it'll produce more benefit for us than we can imagine. That the life-changing power of the kingdom is so valuable that we should be willing to sacrifice everything for it. But that brings us then back to that question that we had. If that's true, why don't we do it? And I think there are two reasons for that. I think the first is that we don't believe that's true. And what I mean by that is this. We might say we do. I might say I do, honestly. I'm going to put myself in this category, too. And in many ways, I do. I do believe the kingdom way is better than any other way, and I genuinely mean that. But when I really start to wrestle with it, when we really start to wrestle with it, it makes it a lot harder Because we kind of like not having the kingdom permeate every part of our life, don't we? I think for most of us, at least I'll speak for myself only, I'll be like, God, you can have all of this part. I'm glad that you redeemed this, right? There's things that from college I'm not doing anymore, and I'm better for it, and I know it, and it's objectively easily seen. You know, but this part, though, I'll hold on to that one for now, right? I got control of this one. I don't really want that part to be permeated I think there are parts of our lives that we don't think that if I were to actually give this up, I'm not sure it would be better. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, a lot of us have those places in our lives. See, it's in those areas where, in which I can resonate so much with the man who comes to Jesus, asking him, asking for his son to be healed. And when Jesus looks at him, he says, do you believe I could do this? And he has doubt. And so he falls down at his feet and says, I believe, but I need your help to help me believe fully. In my life, that experience of holding on to this, I know it would be better in one part of my brain if I gave it up to God and I'd also have a really hard time believing it fully. I think a lot of us don't take the step to allow the kingdom into those spaces because we struggle to believe fully, both in our head and our hearts, that it will be better if we did. It's so much easier to say we believe that Jesus' way is the best than to actually deeply believe in our hearts that it is. Which leads us to the second reason why I think so often we don't actually allow the kingdom to permeate into our lives. It's because that it's because even though Jesus' way is the best way, we say this all the time, it is not the easiest. See, the way of Jesus costs us. See, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. It has immense value, but in order to get it, both men had to sell everything. The cost. That process had to be terrifying. The process was time-consuming, took work to get rid of all of their stuff, to have enough to buy this treasure. Now, I've shared this analogy with many of you before, so I'm sorry you're going to get it again. But I I think we can compare this idea pretty easily to our physical health. So we can all agree that eating well and exercising is the best way to be regularly healthy. We all agree on that? right? Exercising, eating way is the best way to be regularly healthy. When we eat the right foods, we feel better, don't we? When we exercise, we have more energy, we sleep better, and we have all of those things, right? But so many of us don't do it. Why? For the exact same reason we don't pursue the kingdom. In some sense, we don't believe the sacrifice is worth the payoff, that it's going to hurt if I have to run or bike or do whatever, but also, the further we are from the kingdom, the more intense that pain of coming back is. If you're physically very out of weight, that first mile walk is much, much harder than if you're in relatively good shape. There's a cost to being healthy, and many of us don't want to pay that cost. Some months ago, when we first heard Jesus' word of preaching in Matthew, turn, repent for the kingdom is all around us, that's an invitation that, re- that rings true again this morning. The kingdom of heaven has the power to change the trajectory of the human race. We see that today. And we're invited into that mission by allowing the kingdom to work its way through each of our lives individually. And so I want to wrap up quickly because I just realized one second ago I'm already 15 minutes over. This is bad and we have communion. Ah. Um, so if you're here this morning, though, and you're still skeptical of this whole Jesus thing, I completely get that. I can imagine that having to jump into a kingdom kind of life seems ridiculous to you. It would have to me, actually, in certain parts of my life, too. Of course, you don't see the value of the sacrifice. How could you? But, like I said earlier, um, many of us who have been Christians for a long time are still wrestling with how to do that. So, if, they, if this morning you're just sitting here going, I'm not sure I trust this whole Jesus thing, I want to remind you of the first part of the parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, it's like yeast, it starts small. So maybe just begin with a simple question. Is there one area of your life in which you'd be willing to see what the kingdom life does if you let it start to grow? Maybe it's as simple as my story about media, which is right—the changing what you put in. Maybe what you change what you consume for a season and see what happens. Just see what it does to your life. Maybe it's changing the language you use. Maybe you can focus on speaking positively rather than negatively. And I don't mean neutrality. I mean actually speaking positivity into other people's lives. See what it does to them and to you. Plant a small seed of the kingdom. Maybe it's committing to changing an attitude towards someone who's hard to love. Or maybe it's entering into discussion lovingly with someone who sees the world differently than you, seeking to understand them and care for them. I don't know what it is. But my challenge to you this morning is if, if you're skeptical in any way, just try something. One thing, let the, let the small seed of the kingdom be planted and see what happens. Because I'd be willing to bet that all of a sudden you will see major fruit and change in your life in that way. But I want to give the same challenge to those of you who have been in the church for a long time. But I'm going to add one thing, though. I, want, I would add that you would, I would encourage you to take a look at the areas in your life where the kingdom is currently doing its work First. Where are some areas of your life that were one way and then you started doing things Jesus' way and things changed? Take account of the fruit that's there. It'll help you believe that other parts of your life can change as well. And then ask yourselves, what area have you prevented the kingdom from being worked through? And would you allow a seed to be planted in those spaces? Because the same work that was done in those other areas can be done in the the new one as well. So, I want to close today, and I know we're, we're already short on time, but it's okay, because this is important. I want to close today with communion. See, communion is a beautiful way to end this space. It's, it's, it's a declaration of the things that we saw already and what the Christian worldview has done to the world, because communion is a space in which we invite everyone to the table, where all of those ideas of value that we had before, of people being better or worse or more valuable than others, is gone. The Christian declaration is that in Jesus you are all beloved children of God and there is no value distinction no matter how good or bad you've been this week or in your life or at any point. Communion is a space in which we can come together and recognize that we're all fallen and Jesus has redeemed us all. Communion is the practice of admitting to ourselves that we all have brokenness in our lives and the declaration that we need Christ. It's also the declaration that we need each other too. See, each of us has fallen short. Each of us has failed in one way or another, and communion is our reminder that failure is not what defines us in Christ. It's a reminder that Christ has defeated death, and because of that, sin is no longer our master. So, communion is an invitation to affirm or reaffirm that acceptance of the gift in our lives. And so, like I said already, our table is open to anyone who wants to accept Christ's love uh, for us and begin following him today in whatever way, big or small. So in just a few minutes, I'll invite you up. Um, We'll come up front here. I'll ask you to take one plate for family unit, or maybe two if you have a bigger family unit, uh, so that we'll have enough. Um, Then go back to your seats, and I just want to encourage you, like we always do then, to, to spend a few seconds reflecting on what we talked about. Maybe before you take communion today, you ask yourselves those two questions we close in. What areas do you want to plant the kingdom today? Uh, if, you, if, you, if you don't feel like communion is the space you want to be today, too, don't feel any pressure to come up. You can just sit there uh, and, and reflect as well. That's fine. It's, it's fine. But we, it's interesting because this, I think this is such a perfect week to take communion because we always read the same scripture passages before we take it every time. We read, it, we read one of Paul's words in Galatians, but here are Paul's words from Colossians that we open communion with. Paul says, At the table here, there is no Gentile or Jew And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body, you were were called to peace. And be thankful. So now hear these words from Luke 22. When the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. Jesus said, I've been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He said, take, take this and share it amongst yourselves, for I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. He took the bread. He broke it and said, this is my body, broken for you, given to you so that you know your value is secured. He said, when you eat it, remember me. Likewise, he took the cup and put wine into it and said, this is the sign of the new covenant. When you drink of it, remember me. Will you pray with me?